From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Researcher, author Lisa Peace has been researching the assassination of Bobby Kennedy for more than a quarter of a century. Her book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, contends that the supposed gunman, Sirhan Sirhan, is innocent. Witnesses who had details of the conspiracy were silenced by the LAPD, and evidence was deliberately altered and in some cases destroyed. Sirhan Sirhan continues to languish in prison at the Robert J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California, and he is to receive yet another parole hearing on August the 27th. I believe this will be his 16th parole hearing. Sirhan, of course, was visited in prison by Bobby Kennedy Jr. back in 2017, and uh, Bobby Jr. concluded after months of his own research, that Sirhan was not responsible for his father's murder. Coming up in Hour 2, an update on the miracle molecule Carbon-60. Research scientist and engineer Chris Burris will be here to talk about the latest studies on ESS-60. That's the consumable form of Carbon-60. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. Now, we are recording tonight's show, uh, but we will not be live streaming. Ryan is uh, up north at the uh, the cottage and um, won't be able to live stream, but he is recording it, and it will be posted on the YouTube channel Strange Planet in the next couple of days. And, of course, you'll also find it on Rumble. Go to rumble.com, rumble.com, and search under channel channels, rather, for Richard Serrett or Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, eventually moving everything over to rumble.com. All right, let's get into the RFK assassination and the upcoming parole hearing of Sirhan Sirhan. Lisa Peace is author, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Based on more than two decades of investigative research, Pisa's recently published book has already been hailed as the magnum opus of RFK assassination research by the acclaimed author of JFK and the unspeakable James Douglas. Pease was previously published in a collection of essays titled The Assassinations Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. Lisa, welcome. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me on. And, My pleasure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm also in Oliver Stone's film. I understand you talked to Jim DiEugenio about that last week. I I'm Yes, through the, only through the looking glass. That's right. Yes, you are. Yes. Congratulations. I'm the only living researcher who has studied both the JFK and the RFK assassinations in great depth. There were two others, but sadly they've passed along. Bill Turner, who was a former FBI agent, and Professor Phil Melanson, who did great work on both cases. Right, right. So let's talk about Sirhan's upcoming parole hearing on the 27th of August. This is, did I count that correctly? Is this his 16th hearing? Oh, I don't. I didn't. I lost track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think we all have. 
Sirhan is personally abused by the parole board. You know, when they they call him a liar, they say nasty things to him. He wasn't even going to show up for his previous parole hearing because he was so tired of being put down and badgered and, you know, made fun of, ridiculed. And, and, uh, but when Paul Schrade showed up, he did want to talk to Schrade, so he did go to that hearing. And Paul, it's, for those that don't, excuse me, Lisa, for those not familiar with the intimate details of the case, Paul Schrade right. was by uh, Senator Kennedy's side. He was right. a, a, a union leader and an advisor, I guess, to Bobby's campaign and a good friend, and he was uh, wounded. Um, right. In the uh, in in the shooting, and and he to this now believes that Sirhan was uh, innocent as well. Exactly. All right. So let me back up and give a quick overview for the audience. So Robert Kennedy was killed at a hotel here in Los Angeles, where I live, and it was the night of the California primary, the presidential primary, and Bobby Kennedy, by winning California, was pretty much on the path to win the Democratic presidential nomination. He came down just before midnight from his room in the hotel, gave a speech at the Ambassador Hotel to a huge crowd, and after the speech, he walked backstage and then through a little pantry area en route to the printed media because the television media had all been filming him already. But at all his campaign stops, he made a point of talking to the print media. As he passed through the pantry, Sirhan, Sirhan, a young Palestinian immigrant, stepped out, pulled a gun, fired at Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy fell, uh, didn't die immediately, died within the next, uh, I want to say, 28 hours or so. Five other people were also wounded and taken to the hospital. Bullets were retrieved from all of them. Two bullets were retrieved from Kennedy and one each from each of the victims. And then there were a number of holes in both the ceiling and the door frames and evidently the walls, according to yet another witness. Um, but the police, <laughs> excuse me, I choked on water earlier, so I may, I may <laughs> cough unexpectedly. I'm so sorry. Uh, That's okay. The police had to limit the bullet count to eight because the gun Sirhan was holding could have only fired eight bullets. Yeah, it was an Ivory Woods eight-shot twenty-two caliber pistol. Right, right. And in the course of my research, what I found very interesting is that the, the police and the DA knew that none of the bullets from any of the victims matched Sirhan's gun. And I found a great document after, of course, I'd published my book from D.A. Joe Bush, who was not the D.A. at the time Sirhan was prosecuted, but he came in later. And he's like, wow, I find it really curious that none of the bullets ever matched Sirhan's gun and none of Sirhan's lawyers ever mentioned that they might be representing a potentially innocent man. Now, he said this before a 1975 panel essentially proved that. Uh, in 1975, CBS and Paul Schrade had filed suit and wanted a retesting of the evidence. But what none of them understood, and it took me years to understand this, so, you know, I don't expect anybody to believe me offhand, go read the, the paper trail in my book, you understand this. But all the bullets that the panel was testing had been switched, meaning it didn't matter whether they matched well, you know, they couldn't have matched. <laughs> it's already been switched. <laughs> and the only reason to switch them was because 
they didn't match their handgun, and there were more than one gunman. And because the bullets didn't match each other, that was an obvious conspiracy. So the well, there was that obvious. There, not, there was that audio. Not obvious. There was that audio recording. Uh, was it Philip von Prague? Uh, who who uh, there were tape recorded the, the, the in the yeah, in the pantry? Yeah, Prague was a reporter wandering just outside the pantry. You know, the event was over. Kennedy was leaving, but he didn't realize he'd left his tape recorder on. So he actually captured the only audio that we know of that actually has the full shot sequence on it. Now, because people were screaming. There were at least 13 shots identified, but, but it's very likely that there were more that were covered when everybody started screaming at once. So, but at least 13 is way more than eight. And again, one gun, three-hand gun, could only hold eight bullets. Uh, so again, and, and the FBI also photographed what they labeled unequivocally bullet holes in the door frames to and the south door frame and two in the middle divider of the door frame, four bullet holes in addition to the eight the police had already accounted for. So the police just ignored that and decided those couldn't have been bullet holes because it was only Sirhan and there was only one gun. They literally just ignored the evidence and then they destroyed the door frame so no one could examine them. I found some video which I put a link to in my book. I posted it online. I literally paid $750 for like six seconds of video because I wanted the world to be able to see this. And you see not just the holes in the wood, but the paneling that had been removed. And when you when you see the paneling, then you know that all the other explanations, old people were poking pencils in the wall. Well, no, because that meant a little pencil had to actually go through three quarters of an inch pine wood paneling to get to the wall to make the hole, which is ridiculous. A bullet can do that. You know, a little pencil break in half. You tried to do that. So, right, um, right. Anyway. And, and also, so there's, there's um, Sirhan, Sirhan, I mean, Sirhan, Sirhan was firing a pistol. And he was but firing it, a gun. Now, the big question, was he firing bullets or blanks? And by blanks, right. I mean not necessarily blanks in a starter pistol, but, but you can turn any kind of bullet shell into a blank shell. Even the kind that were found in Sirhan's gun, long rifle, uh, one other researcher had claimed that, oh, that just can't be done. In fact, Phil von Prague said that can't be done. But there's actually a YouTube video of somebody actually doing that and firing it. So it can be done. And, uh, and the reason it would be done, it's funny, I just read last week an article about an assassination plot against Jimmy Carter, and, and you won't believe these names. One of the you know, the gunman was named Raymond Lee Harvey, and one of the other ones was <laughs> named Osvaldo. It's like they were trying to deliberately link that in the public mind to Lee Harvey Oswald. But interestingly enough, one of the shooters was supposed to fire blanks as a distraction to pull focus so that the other shooters could kill Jimmy Carter. And that is the argument I make in my book, is that that was Sirhan's real role. He was firing blanks so everybody would look at his gun and pull focus. And the reason Sirhan wouldn't have been giving, given real bullets is he would have been directly in line with the actual assassin, and he would have killed the assassin if he had bullets before the assassin could have killed Robert Kennedy. You know, Sirhan was not a trained gunman. He had spent... You know, a few days at a at a range, he was not an expert shooter by any means. No conspiracy in their right mind would leave 
it in his hands. But having him pull focus makes a lot more sense. And then the question is, how cognizant of the fact was he that he was even participating in the plot? And this is where people go, oh, my God, well, he had to know. Of course he had to know. But he didn't. And I'll give you a contemporary example of a similar plot. All right. In uh, a few years ago, I don't I don't have the date in front of me, but there were these two women in Korea who thought they were performing a TV stunt and ended up murdering the exiled brother of Northern Korean leader Kim Jong. Un. Right. They sprayed poison and, on and his face. This, That's right. It was a stunt. And they were told, you know, one of you goes up and sprays water. One of you wipes with a towel. And they didn't know there was a VX nerve agent that was going to kill him when they sprayed the water. Or I think it was in the towel. And when they wiped the towel, that killed him. And it's, it was obvious to me reading this that neither women were in on the plot. So they were literally tricked into killing somebody. <clears throat> and I argue that's what happened to Sirhan. And again, it's, there's no way I'm going to convince anybody in a little hour you know, <laughs> what it took me 25 right. years to discover for myself. Well, the contention was that, that he yeah. was hypnotized. And um, but that now is, is has that been to your satisfaction? Has that been proven that he, that he was hypnotized? Because I, I've read that, you know, the American Psychological or the Psychology Association said, no, he wasn't. And others say, yes, he was. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, the American Psychology Association has a long-standing relationship with the very people who likely killed Robert Kennedy, the CIA. So I take anything they say with a grain of salt. You know, it's their job to, you know, say things like that. There are hypnotists who will tell you, oh, you can't make somebody do something against your will. There are other hypnotists who say that's simply not true, and we have now decades of evidence to show that you can make people harm others or themselves where they would not normally do that. And the proof of that is there are women who won a lot of lawsuits because they found out they've been hypnotized by their doctor or their therapist, or in one case, their pharmacist, and and made to have sex with them under hypnosis without being able to give consent. So it's something that all hypnotists will tell because it protects them. You know, it's like a liability clause for them. They want you to right. think that you can't do anything. I, I witnessed a bunch of hypnosis when I was writing the book. I went to everything I could find, you know, to see if I saw any patterns. And at one show, I was really, really freaked out because this woman, I had talked to her for like 20 minutes before the show. Neither of us knew she was going to be a volunteer in the show. She was just as normal as can be. You know, I sat next to her. It's not like she came up and sat next to me. She wasn't a plant. Very normal person with some friends. And during the show, she was called up on stage and told, oh, you won, you know, here's a $35,000 check. And and uh, she, you know, got all excited and jumped around. And at the end of the show, the hypnotist says, okay, you're all unhypnotized, go home. Well, you know, I, I didn't see her right away, and I wanted to talk to the hypnotist, so that was my focus. But after I talked to the hypnotist about Sirhan, he looked very uncomfortable and, and immediately excused himself and left the area. That woman was still wandering around looking very distressed. And as the crowd parted and everybody left, I saw her. And so I went up to her. I'm like, did you lose your family? You know, what's wrong? And she's like, well, I have to give this back. And it was just like Monopoly play money. It was nothing. And and I'm like, well, I don't think he cares. And she goes, no, it's a $35,000 check. I have to give this back. And I was, I was like, 
is she real? Is she for real? You know, she's not faking this. And so I said, can I hold it with you? And she said, okay. So I grabbed it. I said, can we look at it closer together? And she's like, yes. I'm like, can you look in the upper right? Do you see where it says 100 And she said, no, it's a $35,000 check. And I was so freaked out because she did not appear hypnotized. She looked as normal as she had before the show. But she was right. clearly still in the hypnotic illusion. And that was the first time I realized that's what they did to Sirhan. And that's why no one, you know, thought he was hypnotized. I mean, you know, it didn't look like he'd been hypnotized. But there were a couple people who said he looked incredibly serene and his eyes, you know, were big. And even the cops who arrested him, they did do a, a flashlight in the eye check, and one of them noted that his pupils stayed dilated. And that is one of the signs of hypnosis. So, There's some you know, suggestion too that there was maybe the I don't know rohypnol in the in the he talked about that giant coffee urn that was presented to him by the the famous the lady in the polka dot dress. Mm-hmm. And there's been a little development on that, by the way. Uh, a man had sent Sirhan a picture of a woman who I had actually identified in that earlier volume, The Assassinations, as a possible candidate for the polka dot dress. He looked at the picture. He goes, "That's the girl I had coffee with." And it may be, it doesn't mean she was the girl in the polka dot dress in the pantry. It's really hard to understand, you know, what happened there. But but at, at some point, Sirhan remembered pouring coffee for a girl, and then his memory went blank. And this is where hypnotist Dan Brown comes in. William Pepper, who's been Sirhan's attorney for many years, um, Asked Dan Brown because he's an expert in hypnosis. He's the author of several of the textbooks used in colleges across the country. And, and Dan Brown spent more than 60 hours with Sirhan. And he did what Sirhan's defense team did not because his defense team hypnotized him. But here's what they asked him Sirhan, reach for your gun. Sirhan, do you see Robert Kennedy coming? Reach for your gun. Why do you want to kill him, sir? I mean, the questions were outrageously leading. It was like they were trying to implant a memory. It was it was obscene. And, you know, his hypnotist should have been, you know, disqualified from ever participating in something like that ever again, the way he questioned it. But Dan Brown did it differently. He's like, okay, Sirhan, what do you see? What do you hear? Who's near you? Very open-ended, no leading questions. And he teased the tail out that Sirhan was attracted to this woman in a polka dot dress. She had unspoken, you know, sexual availability about her. He, you know, he thought he might get lucky that night, so he followed her around kind of like a puppy. She led him into the pantry. They were, she kind of held him on uh, a tray stand, which put them like a couple of feet above the rest of the crowd so they could see when Robert Kennedy walked in. Sirhan doesn't remember seeing Robert Kennedy walk in, but he does remember the girl saying, look, leading him to the center of the room and then pinching his shoulder in a certain way. And then from that moment on, Sirhan thought he was back at the shooting range that he had been at earlier that day. And he pulled out his gun and thought he was firing at targets. And, of course, there's, there's going to be people who say, well, Sirhan's just lying. But believe me, even the police said after Sirhan was arrested, he doesn't lie. If he knows something, he will tell you. And if he doesn't, he will be quiet or he will, you know, say he doesn't know. But they hadn't caught him in any lie. He, and he's actually, you know, 
I won't say he's a very honest man because who is, but it's very compelling because all the evidence does indicate that he was under a hypnotic state. He had supernatural power. Uh, a football tackle, Rosie Greer, had trouble right. getting the gun from, and so had his tiny. I mean, he's like 5'4". He was a small, thin guy. Um, he was a little wiry because he wanted to be a jockey, you know, so he, you know, had some muscle, but not enough to hold off somebody like Rosie Greer. It took right. four and Rayford people Johnson. to hold right. their hand down. And this is, again, right. a common symptom of hypnosis, that people have supernatural strength under hypnosis. So was the, like they don't Lisa, was the they, lady in the polka dot dress, was she his controller? So I don't, I, I, I think that's a... How do I want to say it? Controller, not so much. Uh, if I were running the plot, I would have a master hypnotist, and then I would just have a trigger person. Like, she would be the trigger woman to send him into the state and give him the final command. It doesn't mean that she herself was the hypnotist, if that makes sense. Okay. All she had yes. to do was lead him to a spot, pinch him a certain way, maybe whisper in his ear, um, you know, there's often a and say the trigger word, whatever that trigger, trigger word may have been. Exactly, right. exactly. Lisa, we'll take Lisa. We're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come I, back I and, and <laughs> okay. We'll take a quick timeout. Come back and discuss the assassination of RFK and also the upcoming parole hearing of Sirhan Sirhan, 52 years now in prison. Back with more of the conspiracy show right after this. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. So I thank all of you. Those of you who are here. Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So uh, my thanks to all of you. And now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Hey, 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 wait, 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 hey, I want to hear him really loud. Who? Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rayford. Get it. Get the gun, Rayford. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rayford. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rayford. Keep people away from him. There you go. That was uh, on the scene at the Ambassador Hotel. Of course, we heard uh, our uh, Robert Kennedy's uh, acceptance speech or after winning the uh, the California primary. And now those memorable words, now it's on to Chicago and let's win there before he's uh, ushered into the, uh, the pantry area where he is shot. Uh, Rayford Johnson grabs a hold of him. Rosie Greer pins him to the steam table. And did they not, Lisa, uh, describe them, him as if he was, even when his his hand was pinned to the steam table 
he kept just firing the pistol almost in a robotic fashion. Was that Rosie Greer or Rayford Johnson who mentioned that? I I forget which one said that. I'd have to look it up. But yes, and even at one point, the gun was even out of his hand. And this had happened in another assassination. This was not in my book, but it was in my earlier articles on the case, where there had been another assassin who had been truly hypnotized and was proven he is hypnotized and he had continued to fire even after the gun had been removed the compulsion people don't understand how a, a suggestion to the mind really can create a compulsion and in my book I, I talk about a psychology student who was doing a simple experiment with a professor and the professor's like, you know, when I pull this card, you know, when I do this, when I give this signal, you're going to go to that deck of cards by the window and you're going to bring me the ace. And, you know, the guy's like, I'll bet you a dollar I won't. But by the end of the day, he's like, I know it's a hypnotic compulsion and I just, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and this wasn't obviously something super important, but even being aware that he had been hypnotized to do something, he found it really hard not to carry out the suggestion. And in that case, of course, you know, there wasn't a lot at stake. It's not like he was told to kill somebody. But it's it's easy to see that you can take that further. And uh, there was a case of a guy in the Philippines who came up during the Jim Garrison investigation of Clay Shaw for the assassination of JFK. During that investigation, a guy named Louis Castillo showed up in the Philippines as a hypnotized assassin in a plot, he claimed he'd been in Dallas to kill uh, JFK. And I think that was the cover story. But what they found is that he was really in the Philippines to kill Marcos, who was challenging the CIA in several ways and, you know, claiming to be leaning towards the communists so that he could get more USAID money. I mean, the standard ploy all third world leaders figured out if they said, oh, I'm thinking of going communist. That was a, you know, a nice way to tap American money. <laughs> so, but Marcos played that too well. And the CIA is like, no, we know you're not a communist. Stop ripping us off. And I would right. send a guy over to kill him. And so it, I know it sounds like this stuff of science fiction, but on the other hand, where do you think, all these spy movies and all this science fiction comes from. I live and work in Hollywood now, and I, the CIA is all over Hollywood. A lot of the writers come from the CIA. They're writing about real things that they have some personal knowledge of. That's how these stories get written. It's not like they're literally true, but they are true in the sense that they are possible. Things like that right. happen. The whole born so identity much of, thing is about a yeah, born identity. Lot. Yes, it's a great example. The born identity for sure. Uh, the creation of, you know, super soldiers and so forth. Uh, um, now, much of this case sort of hinges on Sirhan's position uh, in relation to Bobby Kennedy. And there, wa- there were, of course, there was powder burns in the back of Bobby's, uh, behind his ear. The, the mm-hmm. shots were fired from the rear at an upper trajectory. Um, some yeah, say that, that uh, Sirhan was like a muzzle's length away during that first shot. Others say, no, he was too far away. Well, what do we know for did. sure I about the position of Sirhan? Yeah, I actually made a spreadsheet of every witness statement about Sirhan's position. And it turned out there were people who saw a gun close to Candy's head, but not one of those people could ever identify Sirhan as the shooter. 
but the ones who saw Sirhan and Kennedy at the same time in the same view all put him three feet away. And by that, they said the gun muzzle was three feet from Kennedy and in front of him. And I felt, well, those are the best witnesses because they can see both people and they clearly identified them both. And they were all very consistent. Lisa Urso and Vince DiPiero both saw Sirhan Cross. You know, the girl was holding him at the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the trade stacker. And then they took him to the main, you know, the center of the floor. The girl left him. Sirhan reached out his hand. Lisa Urso thought he was reaching out to shake Bobby Kennedy's hand. And at the last minute, she saw he had a gun in it. But all of them put the gun muzzle distance at about three feet. And that's incredible because, again, Kennedy was shot, according to the autopsy, from behind at a distance of about an inch from his right ear. And the coroner said three inches behind the head and an inch from the right ear. And but behind, meaning like front to back. So, sir, sir again, Sirhan would have had to suddenly dart around Kennedy's back because people have tried to say, oh, well, Kennedy turned to his left, therefore exposing his right ear to Sirhan. But that's, again, not true. And we have several witnesses who say he had just been, he had been turned to his left, but he had just turned forward and started to walk forward when Sirhan pulled out the gun and fired. Now, here's the other thing. Kennedy was directly in line. If Sirhan were firing bullets, Kennedy would have been shot in the chest. Because that's where Sirhan, Sirhan is a short guy. Robert Kennedy wasn't that tall. Sirhan's gun was straight out, parallel to the floor. That's what people described and saw. If he were firing real bullets, he could not have missed Kennedy at that close range. But <laughs> he couldn't have hit him behind the ear. He just couldn't have. Even he was shooting with his right hand. If you put somebody in front of you and you had them turn their head to the, you know, their left, and you try and twist your arm and shoot them from behind the ear, it's, it can't be done. It's like your arm doesn't right. bend out. Right. And what about the, the – was he the assistant coroner for L.A. County, Thomas Noguchi, at the time, or was he the actual no, he was the official coroner. coroner? he was the official coroner. He had ruled on several deaths, including Marilyn Monroe's, which he said correctly, as we know, over the years was not a murder but accidental suicide. She took the wrong combination of pills and – that's something that numerous authors have dug into and the records show. Anyway, I don't even want to go into that. I get so upset. There's like two big lies that are always told. One is that Marilyn was killed. Not true. The other is that the Kennedys authorized the Castro plot. Not true. <laughs> and I can disprove both of them, but that's not the subject of tonight's <laughs> conversation. Right, right. But, but did Noguchi ever, yeah. did, did Sirhan's lawyer, Grant Cooper, ever call Noguchi to the stand? Uh, they did, but Here's how they fudged it up. Because uh, I, I thought, how could they keep the distance problem from the jury? Because it's so obvious if witnesses are putting them in front and their hands, you know, too far away, how do they get the jury not to see that? And so here's the trick they did. They put a grid up with two-inch squares that represented two feet. And so somebody could be four feet away and look like they were right beside each other. And so that's what they end up doing. They had Kennedy in one square and Sirhan in the other. And again, the witnesses say the gun muzzle, who saw them both, said the gun muzzle was three feet away. Uh, But in the chart, it looks like one's in square one and one's in square two, like they're right up against each other. 
and it wasn't so, clear to the jury, don't forget to add two feet, you know, every time you see one of these squares. <laughs> right, right. When we come back, time permitting, we can also talk about uh, how his attorney, Grant Cooper, was perhaps compromised. That's another uh, aspect yeah. of this story. Lisa Pease is with us, and uh, the book is A Lie Too Big to Fail, the real history of the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. More of our conversation right after these. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. When did your feelings start to take on this incredibly uh, uh, obsessional quality. Was it the Arab-Israeli war after you came to this country? Well, I, I suppose that, that it came to the fore where I began, where, when I began to focus on it, uh, erupted as soon after the, the, the 1967 war, where the, the Arabs had lost and the Israelis uh, won. And uh, my anger at the American people's reaction to the loss of the Palestinians and, and the Arabs. One speech that sets you off doesn't, doesn't deserve a terrible fate like that. No, I, I agree, and I sincerely regret uh, my, my actions for that. I was young, I was, you know, immature, I was wild. I, I, I really didn't have the, the ability to sit back and reflect on it as just one speech, one perhaps one pandering speech to a, you know, a potential block of voters whom he was appealing to. All right, there you go. That's uh, Sirhan Sirhan in conversation with uh, the late BBC interviewer David Frost back in about 1989, I think. It almost sounds, yes. some would say, as like no, a confession. I got to say something about that because I yeah. talked to Munir about that. Munir Sirhan is the younger brother of Sirhan Sirhan. He said, Lisa, those questions and the answers were all scripted for Sirhan, and he was promised. If he said exactly what they told him to say, that he would get paroled. And he believed his lawyers, and so he said exactly what they told him to say. And the problem is, it wasn't true. Sirhan never remembered even shooting Robert Kennedy. And the, the whole motive about it was based on the Middle East. This was made up by his legal team as a way to give him a motive because his legal team wasn't about to argue, well, gee, he was hypnotized by people we never found, and you just have to believe us, especially in 1968, when so little was known and the CIA's mind control programs, you know, had not been revealed, and and it, it sounded like science fiction. And so, you know, his lawyers didn't go anywhere near that. And, and in fact, his lawyers argued that Sirhan had managed to hypnotize himself. By, I'm laughing because it's literally ludicrous and not only is that what his lawyers argued, they then said, and it's the most preposterous, unbelievable explanation. So it, it's clear. I read the trial transcript, which was like 5,000 pages. I mean, it took me months to read the whole trial transcript. But I got angrier and angrier at Grant Cooper, the lead attorney, because it was clear that he was part of the prosecution and not part of the defense. He was doing everything he could to sink Sir Han's case. And this was so obvious to me, you know, I looked more into Cooper's background and found out that, you know, of course, he had been representing an associate of Johnny Roselli, who was the, one of the mobsters the CIA had hired to kill Castro. In fact, the Castro plots were run by a guy named Robert Mayhew, who was a good friend of Johnny Roselli. 
And the CIA was actually very involved in Roselli's defense. Bill Harvey had been talking to Richard Helms. It's like, Roselli knows a bunch of things. I think we need to give him more support. And Helms is like, I'm not going to be blackmailed over Roselli. And then they end up giving him support anyway. Cooper is not defending Roselli, but he's defending one of Roselli's associates. In the course of this trial, a grand jury transcript which is supposed to be top secret, shows up on Cooper's desk in front of the judge. And when Cooper's questioned about it, he's like, well, I got it from no other source but the government, which is probably true. I think the CIA put it on his table right there, uh, you know, in the hopes that he would use it to free Roselli. The problem is, of course, that put Cooper in jeopardy because you can lose your lawyer's license by doing something illegal like that, by using a a stolen grand jury transcript as part of your defense. That's completely illegal. He could have been fined, he could have gone to jail, and he could have literally been stripped of all his legal credentials. And he was an old man, you know, and, and respected, and, you know, I'm sure he wanted to retire soon. And this could have been a terrible disaster for him. What's interesting is that his penalty that he ultimately got was the lowest possible penalty. is a $1,000 fine. And the weird thing about it is that they held that penalty over him until Sirhan's trial ended, meaning they held this over his head for, like, more than four months. And if they were going to, like, put him in jail, it would make sense to hold it until Sirhan's trial was over. They're going to fine him $1,000. Why didn't they do that right away and just be done with it? And so so he, he was told to throw the case and everything will be forgiven. That. Yeah, exactly. They were they wanted Cooper to do what they needed him to do. And by gosh, he did. He did all he could. As I read that, that's why I, I there's a book out about the trial that excuses Cooper and says, oh, he did the best he could. And I'm like, that is just not honest or accurate because that's not what happened. And Munir, you should hear him talk about Cooper. I mean, because he, he's like the guy who was mean, he was rude, he didn't want to hear anything the family had to say. He wasn't the least interested in giving us a defense. I mean, he he is furious. Because that's the only, you know, legal team he had. And what's ironic is I was, at a, I was a juror in a trial in Los Angeles, and I was so impressed with the public defender. And the public defenders in L.A. are just awesome. And if Sirhan had actually gotten a public defender, he might have gotten off because they wouldn't have let the police get away with stuff. But they get these big fancy lawyers and they go to the the team and it's like, you know, hey, this is life and death. You need this big fancy attorney and he's willing to work for you for free. So don't turn it down, which is basically what happened. And then either they set Cooper up or he really did steal it, you know, and or paid to have it stolen or whatever. You know, I I stopped because I, I lost interest in whether he personally ordered it stolen or where, whether somebody set him up because in the end it didn't make any difference. What did matter is that that was held over his head during the whole trial. All right, Lisa, we're going to take one final break. We'll come back and we'll talk about this parole hearing. This one might be a little different from what I understand. Uh, you've got uh, a new district attorney, George Gascon, who's sort of changed the rules. Things are a little different. And also there is a letter writing campaign afoot, perhaps to try and sway the parole board this time. Maybe this time after 52 years, Sirhan Sirhan will finally 
be set free. Lisa Peace, my guest. And uh, we'll uh, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss further. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Back in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Sirhan Sirhan will be uh, up before a parole board on August the 27th. He uh, remains at, uh, in um, prison at Robert the Robert J. Donovan uh, Correctional Institution. And um, so this one, we're, we're told, is a little different. The, uh, the L.A. District Attorney, George Gascon, is doing things a little different. How is this going to be different? Well, for one, there was a new law passed in California where if a criminal was 24 years old or younger at the time of their crime, and Sirhan was 24 years old at the time of the crime, that they should be given extra special consideration for release because they were so young that maybe they didn't understand, you know, the severity or the implications of what they were doing. Um, The other thing is, uh, his prison record is clean, and they are pushing, and when I say they, I mean state officials from the governor on down. Our prisons are overcrowded. We have more people that they want to jail than they have room to house. And so there are hardened criminals who are not getting into jail because there's no room. And then you have somebody like Sirhan who has not heard a flea since he's been in prison, and, you know, arguably before that point, and... Uh, and, and should be released. He also, he has a brother and a home. He has a place to go. He, you know, there are people who can meet with him and, you know, monitor his mental health. He meets the requirements for the parole board. And here's the one thing I do want to emphasize. If people decide to write, and I hope you do, and like I said, if you have any doubts, please read my book. By the end of it, you won't have any doubts that he should be paroled. I will give you the address in a second, but I also want to say, the parole board will not overturn the ruling on the case, meaning don't try and argue that he was innocent, they don't care, doesn't matter, has no effect. But you can argue, gee, he was only 24 at the time, and he's had a model record since, you know, completely clean, he has somewhere to go, he has a home and a brother. His brother needs him. I mean, his brother lives alone. The two could help each other. Um, so... And, and the prisons are overcrowded, so it's kind of win, 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 win. You know, we need to get some of the younger criminals off the street. And the older people just don't tend to commit crimes. It's like, let them go. And is the parole board swayed by, by personal opinion or by, the, by opinion, popular opinion? Uh, how do I want to say? Absolutely not. They, they literally can't. What they, they're, they're limited in what they can do. So, but they, if they get, you know, 200 letters on a prisoner, they have to look a lot harder at releasing them than if they get two letters on a prisoner. You see what I'm saying? So every letter actually will make a difference. And at some point, it's very possible that he will not be paroled that day, but then there's a follow-up contested hearing. And it's very possible he could win in that follow-up hearing. So... <coughs> So please don't just assume it's a lost cause and I'm not going to bother. What's the point? Please try. We all have to do what we can. You know, he was wrongly imprisoned in the first place. He provably didn't kill Robert Kennedy. There's a lot of great evidence that he was firing blanks. Excuse me. 
in a hypnotically induced state and that he truly did not even understand what he was participating in, like those women who killed the, the you know, brother of Kim Jong-un. He really didn't know what was going on because of the way it was set up, highly compartmentalized, didn't have any clue what his role was. So uh, it's always puzzled me. Now. It's always puzzled me, Lisa, why he was allowed to live. If there was a conspiracy, ah, why would that. he be allowed first, to live? First of all, there were people who were trying to strangle him and punch him and kill him in the pantry. There were people trying to do that. Also, um, there's a whole other incident about this preacher named Jerry Owen, who supposedly was selling Sir Hannah Horse that day. And it's, it's an incredible story, but I really believe that they thought if Sirhan managed to escape the pantry, and he might have, he was so strong, he almost, he almost did. And had he gotten out and gotten the horse and started running, you know, that would be the perfect excuse for the police to shoot him while he's on the horse and just kill him. And I do think that was like the backup plan. But the other thing was, after Oswald had been killed, that's why they said, we don't want another Oswald. When Jack right. Ruby shot Oswald, almost all of America said the fix is in, because clearly the, the, the guy was silent, so as not to reveal co-conspirators. That was the feeling at the time. And so I think the plotters were very careful to leave the guy alive. But yeah, and keep them behind bars forever, because 52 years, even, <laughs> even, for, even for homicide, uh, I mean, Hinckley, who shot, who attempted to kill Reagan, you know, mm-hmm. was in prison killed. for, what, 30 years, but, but 52 years. Like, as you say, he has an impeccable record. He's not the man, even if he didn't do it, he's, so, he, he's simply, he's still not the man he was at 20, 24 when you're 76, right? right? You're not the same right. person. So, right. you know, uh, I guess what is it that everyone that was maybe in on the conspiracy is now long dead? And so there's not there's no reason to keep him around anymore in, in prison? Well, believe me, I'm sure there are people from certain agencies who still don't want him paroled and don't want anybody to find out any more about this case. You know, I... People say, you know, why why do they care? You know, aren't all the people dead? Well, people are dead, but agencies aren't. If the CIA killed JFK and RFK, and the and the people came to believe that, the CIA knows it could no longer exist. That people would insist it be destroyed. Now, the funny thing is, it would probably rebuild under a different name and with all the same people. But it's just that threat alone is enough to keep the lid on these cases, even though I don't think anybody in power currently had anything to do with it. You, you understand. Right, right. So it, the system is still like in place. Very institutional. Uh, give, us, yeah. give us the address, Lisa, if people w- wish to write to the yeah. parole board. Right, and they can call, too, so I'll give you a phone, too. But it's just Board of Parole Hearings, P.O. Box 4036, Sacramento, California nine five eight one two dash four oh three six and the phone number is nine one six four four five four zero seven two. I'd say write rather than call because there's a written record then a phone call. You know, I don't know if the messages ever make it into the formal record. 
but like I said, a, a, a volume of letters will really make a difference in this case. So Board of Parole Hearing, Post Office Hearing. Box, mm-hmm. 4036, Sacramento, California. Zip code is 95812-406. Sorry, 4036. Let me give that again. The zip code is 95812-4036. Yes. That's it. So where it. if he were released, would he go I've heard some reports say he might go to Jordan. Yeah, I I don't know where that comes from because his brother lives in Pasadena, California. I'm pretty sure he would go to the family home here in Pasadena. They own the home. So it's you know, it's there are lemon trees on the property. It's a nice little house. His old bedroom is unchanged, you know. It's uh it it would be appropriate. I, I have not heard that they would leave the country. <laughs> uh we just have a couple minutes here, but when Bobby Kennedy Jr. went to the uh, Robert J. Donovan Correctional Institution to meet with Sirhan Sirhan. Were you instrumental in making that meeting happen? Yes, yes. I I was over at Bobby's house helping him. He was originally he wrote a book called American Values, which, by the way, is incredible. I really encourage people to read it. It's kind of the book about the Kennedys I've always wanted to read with all the gossip and the episodes, but it's actually true. It's not made up. It's from a family member. And uh, a lot of myths are dispelled in that book as well. But originally that book was going to have a chapter on the JFK case and the RFK case. And um, so he asked me to, you know, come and consult with him. And while we're talking, I'm like, you know, would you like to meet Sirhan? I'm like, because I can put you in touch with his lawyers and, He's like, yes, I would. And and when I contacted the lawyer, she's like, are you kidding me? We get Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> she was very impressed. So that was Lori Dusick. Yeah, I put the two in touch. She, she flew out because she's in New York and drove him down, you know, down the coast and went to see Sirhan. And, and when Robert Kennedy met him, he's like, Lisa, he didn't do it. He said he's a sweet man. He, he He's a very good judge of character because... He's seen so many phonies in his life. You know, when you're rich and famous, you are just besieged by phony people, you know, obsequious people seeking, you know, favor and celebrity right. from you. And, and so it's like he has good people judgment. That's why when he met me, he's like, you, I want to work with because I trust you. And and with Sir he's like, he doesn't deserve to be in jail. So, All right. Well, yeah. we'll um, we'll we'll uh, be paying very close attention on August the twenty seventh when Sirhan Saran is up for a parole hearing, and we shall see what happens. Lisa, and, thank and you so again, much for this. It may not end then. There there is a chance for an appeal, and if if right. he's released, it will probably be on the appeal and not on that day. But watch anyway. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you, Lisa. Terrific as always. Appreciate it. All right, when we come back, an update on the miracle molecule, carbon-60, or at that is the consumable form of carbon-60, ESS-60, with research scientist engineer Chris Burris. That's up and coming on the Richard Serrett, or the uh, Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. That would be me, back with more in a moment. 